Welcome back to Composer Quest. I'm your host in Minneapolis, Charlie McCarran, and this podcast is my way of sharing composing and songwriting advice from all sorts of creative people. If you've been listening to the show regularly, you've probably noticed that the episodes are getting longer and longer. For some reason, all the interviews I've done lately have been around an hour and have too much good stuff that I don't want to cut down anymore. Today's episode is no exception. My guest, Paul Cantrell, is a fascinating composer and fantastic pianist. He actually started a piano podcast about 10 years ago called In the Hands. In my talk with Paul, he uses his piano skills to demonstrate composing styles of Chopin and Brahms. We also get to travel into Paul's own composing mind as he explains how he wrote The Broken Mirror of Memory for himself and bass clarinetist Pat O'Keefe. Stick around to hear his insanely eloquent and beautiful answer to the question, what is your purpose in writing music? Just a little bit of news first. If you've enjoyed my segment, Charlie's Music Production Lessons, I just made them into their own mini-podcast. Check it out at ComposerQuest.com slash CMPL. The latest episode features part of my interview from Tom Snively's podcast, Inside Video Game Music, and in it, I break down one of my productions for the game Star Reaction. Speaking of that, Star Reaction just got released over the weekend, so you can get that game at UntiedGames.com, or you can get my soundtrack at UntiedGames.Bandcamp.com. New patron announcement, Ben Burns just joined the club. I'll actually be interviewing Ben in a couple of hours for an upcoming episode. He's been doing some really cool electronic music. Check it out at abstractionmusic.com. Thanks, Ben. For anyone else who's been listening and wants to chip in a little bit, visit composerquest.com slash patron. All right, enough announcements. Let's get on to my talk with Paul Cantrell. kind of curious to hear your perspective on different classical composers and how they write differently for piano Mm. like are there some characteristics that you like about certain composers well of course i have personal favorites and it's all very subjective uh brahms and especially chopin are nearest and dearest to my heart and you hear me playing a lot of them uh chopin was this uh, extraordinary inventor who was, I think, really the first person to come up with a style of music that came out of the piano, something like the modern piano. Uh, I think of him, actually, he's a a parallel to Jimi Hendrix, in a way, Mm. in that both of them were encountering a new instrument just as it came into maturity. Both of them were extraordinary improvisers and both of them figured out what their fingers would do on the instrument and made that really the driving force behind their music and when you play uh say beethoven it's a great pleasure but beethoven thinks notes first and he was an extraordinary player but he has 
an idea of what the right note is. And there are things in his pieces that are just fantastically awkward, and he knows it. <laughs> but it's, it's the way it has to be. Musically, it's the way it has to be. Uh, you accept the awkwardness because it just sounds right. With Chopin, everything falls out under the hands. Even his hardest stuff feels incredibly good when you really get it. Um, and I think in some ways it's not even, it's not even possible to fully hear Chopin uh, unless you play it. It's such a pleasure in the hands mm-hmm. that the physical experience of playing it is a lot of the musical experience as well. Also, the technical aspects of his compositions are just perfectly aligned with the musical aspects. So if there's a place where you physically need to slow down, maybe to move your hand or catch something, that's also the place where the music slows. Hmm. Uh, There's always a way to let your hand fall into the keys and it comes out sounding right. Hmm. And beyond that, he was extraordinarily inventive with form uh, harmony. He gets, I think, not nearly enough credit for the uh, the structure of his uh, ballades, say. Their organic logic is just incomparable. They're very, very hard to analyze because they don't follow set forms. They follow their own internal logic, and they do it beautifully. When you start trying to fit them in boxes, they come apart. And you'll come across some really hilarious analyses that say, oh, no, fourth pilatus and sonata form. No, it's a theme huh. in variations. But no, it's itself. Huh. Do you think he was the kind of guy who could sit at the piano and start and finish a piece in like uh, an hour or something? Or did he think about them a lot? The, the, re- the reports himself. that we have, um, which of course are from unreliable eyewitnesses, <laughs> who liked him, uh, the reports are that he was an extraordinary improviser and could sit down and just play amazing music. But when he was composing, he would improvise something, obsess over it for days and revise and revise and revise and end up with something that was almost identical to what he started with, but <laughs> maybe with just some tiny tweak or change. Um, hmm. Now, that's the story, of course. Yeah. Mythology is never reliable. Sure, sure. Um, would there be a little bit of a Chopin piece that you would be interested in playing? Oh gosh, well I haven't. Or talking. I haven't practiced up oh, any Chopin. Sure. But what's a? I was mentioning the fourth ballad. I've been sort of working on it on and off, and may one day actually learn the whole thing when my child is older than a year or two. Yeah. He uh, Chopin is a very logical thinker. At the core, his music is actually a lot more like Bach, say, than it is like uh, open-ended noodly improv. It's it's very disciplined. There's always something very elemental at the core of his music. Um, so, for example, in the in that in that fourth ballad I was talking about, there's a passage in the um, near the end. How does it go? Uh, there's in the left hand E flat minor. He's doing this nice kind of rolling thing in the right hand against these groups of six. He has this pattern. In groups of four, but wait, there's more. Those are triplets. So the rhythm is...
and he's voicing every fourth of the triplets, so then a melody comes out of them that's floating completely outside the time of the left hand. It's very logical and very intuitive at the same time. And something, uh, that passage, something I love about it that he always does in his music, uh, is that every line is strong. Inner voices, things that you don't hear. So he's got this line. Which is a nice melody. It's, it's, it, it, turns in a strange way, but it has every note of it, it has direction and intention, etc. But that's true even of, like, this left hand, he could just do... But instead, he's got... In the middle of all of that, there's this... And his music Everything, any line you pull apart, it's always strong. It's always interesting. Even the, the thumb of the left hand will be interesting. The bass line is interesting. Hmm. And in that sense, he does. He, he was a great admirer of Bach. And in that sense, I think he thinks a lot more like Bach than uh, like his fellow romantics. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting when I've tried playing his pieces, tried keyword, hmm. um, but it... Because when I play it, I have to take it pretty slow to get mm -hmm. the notes. And it's amazing how things sound very dissonant. And it's like, wait, is this actually what he wrote? But then yeah. sped up, everything makes sense. And the melodies actually, yeah. He has a lot of note choices that will get analyzed in terms of harmony. But I really think the right way to think of them is in a much more modern uh set theoretic or just free chromatic expressivist kind of uh, lines like somebody will say some of these are passing tones and some of them really count but they all count and this this we're in f minor that b natural is as important as anything in that line equivalent to Jimi Hendrix bend on his guitar. Yeah, <laughs> kind of. or those amazing little things that Jimi would do just wiggling his fingers. Jimi Hendrix, you can't understand him until you've watched video of him playing. We picture that heavy metal, teeth bared, tense, down on the knees, thrashing around. Jimi was the most relaxed player in the world. He had just a, kind of a little bit of a loose shoulder, not quite a slump, but he just kind of wiggled a little bit on stage and and he was always chewing gum <laughs> and moved his hand just in tiny tiny ways to do some fiercely technical thing and you can just barely even see his wrist going just sort of wiggles his hands over the string and all these notes come out and when you understand that those those sounds he's making that's not him pouring tension into the instrument until it's bursting now what you're hearing are tiny 
tiny, tiny little things being magnified to the point where they almost burst your speakers. But but it's tiny things magnified. Yeah. That's what he's doing. And listen to his music that way. You'll you'll hear it, I promise, in an entirely mm. new light. Cool. Um, yeah, are there any other composers you can... Uh, well, we Brahm, could go on all day. We could go on all day. I don't know. Um, Brahms, uh, something I love about him is that he wrote pieces where there's a clear melody that you hear until you actually start trying to find the melody. And then you realize that you don't know what the foreground is. It's like Renaissance choral music. There's all these little fragments of things moving, and the foreground is the totality of all of them, not any one of them. I think that those, those late intermezzos, especially, that he wrote right after he thought he was done composing. Any piano piece with an opus number in the one-one-somethings of his is worth checking out. Um, like... so clear but what, what's the melody yeah <laughs> yeah yeah that's totally just and your fingers were going all over the entire piano too. crossing hands yeah. i'll play it slowly and you can hear how it's there's these little gestures which are that's one of them On top of those little things, there's this funny little line. He marks this very clearly as a line with a beaming. Hmm. That doesn't quite sound like a line by itself. <laughs> no. It's interesting, but gosh, it's strange. So we have that plus then All of those sorts of things hiding in there. Uh, and finally, a bass line, which is just A's. Etc. Yeah. That's cool. That's interesting that thinking of the bass note just being A, but yet everything on top of it is shifting totally different and chords. And yeah, but I really, I do like that effect when you're composing something of get, grounding it in something. I don't know. It seems to me that all of the music that I love has both something very elemental grounding it at its core and some degree of freedom to move away from that or around it or to surround it with something. Hmm. Always, always. And by elemental, I mean steps down or maybe a rising forth. Hmm. That simple. Um, but some anchoring idea 
This piece that I was just playing, the outer sections are built around that little rising line. He reharmonizes the same melody several times, and this is something that I love doing in my composition too. That it's a absolute Brahms ripoff. <laughs> First time, it's. Second time, he harmonizes it like this. Very grounded in C sharp minor. Next time it comes back, he harmonizes it like this. With F sharp minor in the left hand. And later in the piece, towards the end, when that theme finally comes back after a middle section, he reharmonizes it against that. Can you hear it in your head? That sounds totally like it'll grind against it. Minor and major chords going on at the same time. It's, well, the it's, same... it's the uh, how to disappear completely chord, major triad, with half step above higher. Oh. So it's D sharp major, call it E flat major in the left hand, with this E natural above it. Mm, so like that. in that melody, what was the most anchored note is now the most dissonant note. Hmm. And on that last page, on that page, he doesn't actually get back to the tonic, the real C-sharp minor, until the bottom of the page. It delays, delays, and avoids, and passes by it in inversion, but just floats, 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 floats. This piece that started so anchored and stuck in that position ends up drifting like like this leaf that takes forever to settle back where it came from. Hmm. Yeah, I, I feel like that's a, such a key thing in composing to delay getting back to a tonic. Like, I mean, maybe at the beginning you resolve it more so and then I don't know. Yeah, how do you approach well, well, that? Well, uh, I think that tension and release is one of the primary drivers of music that has to always be dealt with in some way. And something can be very tense or very rooted or very meandering the whole time. Uh, there's all kinds of ways to structure it. But the question of when is there tension, when is there release, what kind, how often, where does it lead, that's, that's one of the architectural drivers of a piece. And certainly something I've learned from being a performer is that the architecture lives and dies in tiny nuances and tiny decisions. The big picture of a piece has to be supported by every note choice, every voicing, every minute touch of the finger on the key or breath in the voice has to serve the large scale form of the piece. Mm. Mm -hmm. If you have 
delayed resolution, and then the resolution comes, how you land on that resolution, just that one note, is going to justify the length of the delay. If it's taken a very tense minute to get from the five to the one, then when you land on that one, how are you going to do it? Is it going to be heavy? Is it going to be triumphant? Is it going to be fleeting? Hmm. That decision makes the time it took to get there work or not work. And what that means for me is that it's, I find, impossible for a piece to be done until I've spent some time performing it. I don't really learn even my own music until I've had to do it in front of people. And I've stopped even calling pieces done or not done until I've premiered them several times. I actually am very uh, opposed to our focus on premieres as a driver in so much of what we do. You'll see uh, Grant's calls for scores saying uh, premieres, pieces never performed before. I think it's a terrible thing. It puts composers in a bind, which is that we have to spend a lot of time putting together a piece that may or may not be performed. And if it is performed, it'll only be a premiere once. And I think it incentivizes throwaway composing. I would much rather take a long time to really write and revise a piece that's worth hearing many times. Maybe you don't even hear it properly until the second or third time you've listened. I would much rather do that than churn out lots of little throwaway pieces, because the truth is there's a lot of music in the world, and I'm not sure we need more music per se. Um, I think we need more music that really is worth hearing and has somebody's best thought and best passion behind it. Hmm. Yeah. It's cool what you're doing with the new ruckus, new composer nights, because you are challenging composers to bring their work that's not quite finished sometimes. Sure. And get it premiered. And, yeah. The new ruckus composer nights encourage music that's anywhere from just started and malfunctioning and in need of critiquing all the way to old favorites frequently performed that need to be heard again. Mm -hmm. And I really do want pieces to have lives, not just performances. I love the idea with notated music that it can be played again and again. And even a very similar performance, it's like looking at a three-dimensional object with one eye closed and then opening the other eye instead, or just taking one step slightly to the left, even a slight change in perspective all of a sudden gives dimension and the sense of the object as something that's three-dimensional and complex, and there's more to it than you can ever see from one single perspective. And I love the idea of the piece as this platonic ideal that exists outside of any one interpretation of it. And I would like for new music to have that same life. It often doesn't. Yeah. One of the new ruckus's mission statement, core vision, bullet point items is that we only do things that are non-selective, meaning either it's something that you can share with the whole class, as it were, or it's just first come, first serve. It's our business of saying yes to everyone. And if we have to 
pick winners, then there are other organizations who do that better because it's a very hard, very hard thing to do. So we're just trying to fill that gap of fostering community and saying yes to everyone and having something that's as corny as it sounds, just unconditionally affirming because you need that finally, even even if when it comes down to us, uh, composers mostly being mediocre, even if there's this sea of mediocrity, you need that. Art needs that. Uh, we need people noodling. We need people at the edges of doing really great things. We need people playing just for the hell of it. We need amateur pianists and amateur singers and amateur composers because that support network is just as important as the virtuoso, the most excellent writer, the, the Chopins of the world need the mediocre pianists like me. We're all part of to the make same them support look network. Well, no, to, to, to make. <laughs> it's not just about making the best look good, it's about giving the best an ecosystem in which it matters that they're that good. Yeah. Greatness, not just by needing comparison, but by needing enthusiasm and support and community passion, greatness and mediocrity need each other. Mm -hmm. When you have only the best music heard and only the best musicians playing, then you have death. That is an ecosystem that's going to die. Yeah, I was thinking about that actually the other day when I was listening to NPR and just thinking about how every performance you hear on the radio is perfect. So, in a way, like very technically accurate. And as a composer, it's tough because when I listen to my music performed, but if there's little mistakes, it's that the mistakes that you kind of notice more so, which is too bad because like as a whole those performances that have mistakes can be really good and expressive. And Mistakes are a minor thing. I think what really slays composers are performances that don't work musically, that don't get at the heart of what we were hearing when we wrote the music. Mm. That's difficult. And that's not just about right notes. It's about everything. Tempo, touch, phrasing, who knows, whatever it takes to make this piece tick, it's hard to find. Good performances are hard. And it's it's painful when your music is dying on stage because you just didn't quite connect with those performers and you wonder, was it my notating? Is it them? Is it just the time we had? Who knows? But even in thinking about music on the radio and listening to it, hearing this perfect music, that's only one of the ways that we relate to music equally important is people muddling through it on the piano at home, singing the songs to themselves in their car poorly, mm -hmm. very poorly. Doesn't matter. Music is incredibly personal. And a large concert hall, a radio station, those are incredibly depersonalized things. Music works best when we find a way to have some really, really intimate connection with it. 
whether through intimate listening or playing ourselves. I talked about the feeling of Chopin and the hands being so much of the part of the experience of playing it. Um, there's music that I play terribly and is very important to me. And it's not because I've ever performed it right. That messy amateur relationship with the music is every bit as important as the outstanding, perfect performance that's on a pedestal. Yeah, that's good. Interesting to think about that way. Oh, well, maybe we could talk a little bit about your own music. Sure. <laughs> We've alluded to it, but um, yeah, I was listening to The Broken Mirror of Memory, which I really enjoyed. And Thank you. It was interesting hearing your, your, you talk about it on your podcast, too. Because that mm. helped me get into the piece a little more, too, and thinking of like how you have the two themes. Was that kind of what was driving the whole piece, is thinking about these two themes that are interacting in some way? Or The Broken Mirror, th- what drives the piece as you listen to it is not the order it was written in. Um, I wrote the very beginning and the very end first, and then a bunch of anchors that came throughout the piece. Hmm. And the composition process was about realizing the way in which all of these themes and anchors were connected and assembling them into an arc and realizing eventually when I, when I wrote that little chorale that comes at the end, uh, I didn't Hmm. think it was the end. I thought it was just a nice little thought that would Hmm. be the basis for something. And it ended up being the very last thing in the piece because it had to be, I get a strange question. The piece begins fairly dissonantly and has a lot of modern sounds in it and ends with this very Schuberty sort of yeah. chorale. And people say to me, well, why did you end it that way? As if there's some sort of mathematical derivation I can give that proves it, it ends that way because it has to end that way. And that is what everything in the piece was seeking and leading up to. Musically, the piece insists that it has to end there and to do anything else would be dishonest. And that's the only explanation I can give. Hmm. So th- I, I really like that as an ending. Uh, it works. Yeah, it, I, I don't set out to write a super tonal ending. Uh, one of the things I strive for in my music is to rid myself of a uh, sense of theoretic and stylistic boundaries that I think dominated music a lot in the 20th century. Uh, there's a lot of 20th century music that is very important to me, and I use the theory, but something I just hated about the 20th century is that everything defined itself in terms of what it was not. Hmm. This music is not tonal. Well, this music is not intuitive, it's serialist. Well, this music is not serialist, it's chance-based. Well, this music is not atonal, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. It's, it's this antithesis-based thinking in which every style sort of looks like the negative space around whatever it's avoiding. Hmm. And I much prefer to be able to write things that would be very dissonant to a 19th century listener 
that flow immediately into and out of and through things that would be very tonal to a mid-20th century listener. To just remove those walls. And Larry Yank made a comment about the broken mirror of memory that I just love. He said, the tonal parts and the dissonance all flow from the same source. And that's what I strive for. There are, in every possible combination of notes, there are emotions that nothing else evokes. This has a feeling. And this has a feeling. And that has a feeling. And there's no substitute for any of those things. If I lop off some part of the possible harmonic vocabulary, some part of the styles that are available to me, I've lopped off some part of the emotional range that's available to me. Hmm. So I try very hard to rid myself of ideas about what century this came from and just let the music speak to where it wants to go. So that broken mirror introduction I was talking about, it's, it's very triadic and it's not functionally tonal at all. Hmm. The, Meaning what exactly? Sir? Well, the, the, the opening measures here. They're based on this, as I said, always a very elemental thing. Just. Which could be very tonal or not. Mm -hmm. Could be harmonized in any number of ways. And out of this, I let harmonies emerge. Not in terms of it's this chord resolving to that chord, but in terms of what are all the overtones? What are those two notes that we're hearing? How do they interact? How do they interact with what just came before? And especially, how do they create just the right tension to lead into what's coming next? And you end up with... These things that are triadic, not quite functionally tonal. I could call this, well, really, it's a, that's an E-flat 7 augmented and an E diminished 7 and uh, another diminished 7. And now here's F-sharp major with an added C, however you want to analyze that. But it's just nonsensical. It doesn't, I can name all those chords and it doesn't tell me anything about what's happening. The logic is about individual lines. pushing forward. And interacting with each other and different kinds of harmonies just emerge naturally based on how they're moving. Here's that whole bit played a little slower. The last chord there. It's flirting with B7, mm -hmm. but it also has in it, uh, for example, the left hand. Is an E flat minor in second inversion mm -hmm. more than anything? Who knows? Again, na yeah. naming the chords doesn't tell us much. What's so interesting is every one of those notes 
How does it sit next to what just came? Is it resolved? Is it tense? That one sits in an interesting teeter point. Is it going to go up or down? Well, neither. Mm, yeah. That's the next chord. Oh, where did where did it go? Anyway, it just evaporated. Gotcha. <laughs> but it helps set up uh, that that one that was floating helps set up that in the mm. left hand. Hmm. So when I write, I follow these lines and their internal logic and harmonies, especially based on overtones, uh, on just the sound on this particular instrument. What do these notes together do when they interact and what else fits in there? And what I was just playing, the bass clarinet on top of that is playing these... These notes that you don't at first even hear, they just recolor the piano and emerge out of it. Hmm. That's not based on any kind of idea of harmonic interactions. It's based on my listening to the sound of bass clarinet overtones and piano overtones interacting and doing interesting things and just what creates the right color that gives this piece momentum that propels it forward where it's going. So and, you, when you, you were writing this piece, was it more of coming up with the parts on piano and then deciding the clarinet part after that? Or is it kind of a combo of thinking? It the, depends a lot. Um, you always have to start somewhere. That section, I think I wrote the piano part first and the bass clarinet part second. And left, it's a very dense piano part, obviously. It's choking out the bass clarinet. Mm. That's kind of the driving force of the movement is that the, the bass clarinet is submerged a lot of the time and then bursts out finally with uh, the bass clarinet gets this. That melody, which comes back again and again and again throughout the piece. It sings that out and then gets submerged by a wave of piano and then sings it out again and submerged again and the first movement is just it's two minutes of struggle for the bass clarinet to find its voice in this rapidly moving thing first movement ends very tense very unresolved and with the piano just from bottom to top doing something dense and overwhelming Out of that, then, the problem is, in this entanglement, how do you escape? There was something there that wants to find some kind of freedom, equilibrium, integrity. Where is it? Where is that thing? The movement leaves us with that search, and that problem sets up the second movement, which is extremely spare piano part like that and the bass clarinet does a series of long talking solos uh, 
over a piano part that's just atmospheric and distant. So we're from in entanglement to total isolation. Each movement poses a problem, and the next movement answers the previous movement's problem with a new problem. Hmm. So from dense entanglement to soliloquy, isolation, floating, finally we find a, a place to land. And then in the third movement, which is a sort of tangly thing, what was entanglement now becomes intertwining. The two things move around each other, but that movement is so restless that it has nowhere to land. last movement then is about finding that equilibrium that the bass clarinet was searching for from the very beginning with this lyrical line. Ah, at last, here we are. And the answer to here we are is this melody. That falling fourth, rising fifth, has actually been in the piece the entire time, all over. It's written to everything, everything's made out of it, that plus the descending line. Those two things are at the core of every motif in the piece, and at the end, those two things, the descending line and that uh, falling fourth, rising fifth melody, come together and finally feel like they've reached home. Hmm. Cool. Did you come up with the title, The Broken Mirror of Memory? Titles always come last for me. I compose completely intramusically. If there's some seed of inspiration from outside the music, it rapidly fades into the background. And The Broken Mirror of Memory is a Gabriel Garcia Marquez quote uh, out of the book Chronicle of a Death Foretold. The piece has nothing to do with the book, it has nothing to do with the paragraph from which the quote came. It was just a phrase that I liked that fit the piece somehow. Uh, titles are very difficult for me because the logic of a piece being intramusical doesn't want a title that interferes with it. And part mm -hmm. of me wants to call everything untitled number 17. <laughs> but at the same time, uh, I, I really believe that it's a composer's job to give listeners lots of doors to walk through into a piece. And 
anything that I can do that's evocative and suggestive and engaging and gets people listening, that's a good thing for me to do. So I look for titles that are very evocative and catch your attention without actually saying anything about what the piece is about. Yeah. No, I I think it's a great title, actually. And I started, as I was listening, I was thinking back to how our memories are totally fallible. Fallible. Mm -hmm. Um, And, yeah, so I was kind of thinking also, like, the end, that corral... I really liked that, and I was ca- almost thinking, like, maybe you're thinking that was the moment that someone remembered, and then everything that came before it <laughs> was, like, the broken, trying to remember how that piece actually sounded. I like that interpretation. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, just... I don't know if it's, it's right or wrong me. or anything, but yeah. I like it. Well, Paul, what I do sometimes on this show actually all the time, is I challenge my guests to come up with intro music for their episode. Ah. Like a little bit of a... And I know you do some improvising. Sure, too. I'd be happy to improvise something. Yeah. We'll see what happens. Sure. I, uh, I come from a very classical background, and I found it very, very helpful to start improvising. And now... Just doing free improv is an important part of my composition and practice schedule. The rules are I sit down and I let my fingers find the notes and nothing is wrong for five minutes for the length of it. Whatever happened, that was the music. And then when I compose, things can be wrong. Things can be really, (laughs) really, really wrong. I'll spend a day writing three notes and revise them a hundred times and then throw them out. But it starts with improv, which is, in fact, where the opening of The Broken Mirror came from. That was originally five seconds of improv that I liked and said, wait, what did my hands do? So here's your intro music. All right. I like it. Cool. Oh, go turn it into a piece. Yeah. Um, So another tradition I've just started on the podcast too is um, I have the person I interviewed last ask a question for the person I interview right now. (laughs) So what did Mike want to know? Or was it um, Mike? Actually, it wasn't Mike. Ah. Um, I interviewed him a while back, but 
Don't tell me it takes time to edit these things. (laughs) No, no way. Yeah, so Angela Johnson, who is a music Mm -hmm. therapist Mm -hmm. um, and songwriter, asked, what is your own purpose in writing music? That's a really good question. She asked me that too, and I... It took me a little bit, and I don't think I actually came up with a good answer, but... (laughs) What is my purpose in writing music is, I think, very similar to the question, what is music for, and why do we even have it? It doesn't feed us or hold our buildings up. Uh, It doesn't do anything apparent for us, but I have an idea about it. Um, I think that our human brains are big messes. They're product of a lot of very recent evolution that's still kind of in progress. And we have this analytical prefrontal cortex stuff and emotions, which I think are recent in a lot of their manifestations, and lots of very primal instinct, lots of deep-seated visual and acoustic perception processing that's just about the physics of the world and how our senses work. And all of these things are in our brain, jumbled together, putting on the facade of actually working beautifully together. But it's, it's kind of a mess. It's kind of a mess to have both that sort of lizard part of your brain working its way up Maslow's hierarchy and having social relationships and having human curiosity and having our just insatiable desire to see patterns. We love meaning, even when there is none to be found. All of this is rattling around in our heads, and it means that being human And being conscious can be a very demanding and difficult thing. And I think the purpose of art in general, but especially of music, which is so abstract, is that music both articulates and and aids just the process of being conscious and alive. It teaches us how to think and feel, not in a moralistic way, but it says, you're inhabiting a mind, what are you going to do about that? And music teaches us how to do it. It teaches us how to deal with tension and release and expectation and emotions of every kind, including ones that we don't have words for, and finding patterns and losing patterns. It takes all of the messy experience of all the different aspects of consciousness that we struggle with and puts them in a package that we can deal with that's orderly and beautiful and says, here's here's a thing that's a reflection of your consciousness that's beautiful, that actually works. And by beautiful, I don't necessarily mean pretty and sunshiny. By beautiful, I mean it's right, it's balanced. It has a kind of order to it, even if, even if by beautiful, I might mean something that's very dark and tense and dissonant, but there's, there's a beauty in that when it's just so. 
it lets us encounter the most difficult parts of having a mind and deal with them in a way that's, that's safe and constructive and helpful. So to the music therapist, I guess I would say, in brief, the point of me writing music, my purpose is music therapy for myself and for others. It's to help us all deal with being human. Because good Lord, look at the planet. We could all use some help with that. <laughs> that is true and very beautiful. Beautifully said. <laughs> wow, that's great. Do you have a question for... My next guest. Who is your I, next I'm not guest? Tell, I'm, I can't oh, tell you. I can't. I can't make it tailor-made. Um, hmm. All right. Not, all right. No, all right. All, no. right. all right. Here's the question: What order do you usually write the parts of your piece in? Do you start at the beginning and work to the end? Do you start from the outsides and work in? Do you start from the big picture and work down to details, or the other way up? Do you use some other process? What What are the first things to happen in your process, and what are the last things to happen? Good question. Yeah. <laughs> Since I know so little about who I'm yeah. asking it of, I yeah. have to keep it pretty generic. That's, yeah, no, that's good. I've, I've been working on some songs recently. That's my... Uh, oh, yeah? My project. Uh, well, uh, my wife and I just had a baby, so I don't have much time for composing, but I've been stealing minutes here and there, oh. working slowly away at them. Um, and I've struggled a lot with uh, the process aspect of lyrics. Uh, and then I learned something that solved the problem for me so beautifully and gave me so much hope for my, my uh, little songs as they take shape. Uh, I'll give it to you as a pop quiz. Uh, what do Graceland and Rhythm of the Saints and the David Bowie albums Heroes and Low and almost all Joni Mitchell, and the Beatles song Yesterday, and most early 70s Yes, and most late 70s Talking Heads, including Remain in Light. I could go on. What do they all have in common? Ooh. Uh, hmm. Does it have to do with the lyrics or the music? It does. Okay. Both. Um, does it have to do with their rhyming schemes or no something much simpler than that hmm. perspective can I, can I give it to you yeah they wrote the music first oh oh yeah scrambled the, eggs baby how i used to love your legs that's a very hard <laughs> melody to sing that b natural yeah such ingenious writing. Yeah. yeah. Lyrics came last. Graceland. Graceland. He wrote the lyrics last. It's some of the most beautiful lyric writing. Huh. Man walks down the street. He says, why am I short attention? Got a short little span of attention. Oh, my nights are so long. It's beautiful. Yeah. Paul Simon, of all people. Yeah. I would, he's such a good lyricist. I, I would think he'd start with lyrics, but hmm. They, they layered up all of the... <clears throat> rhythm and accompaniment tracks got all these grooves they liked and he wrote lyrics to fit into it all hmm. so do you have some snippets of these songs you've been working on that you could oh i could share? i could give you i could give you just a little taste yeah that'd uh, be cool 
the opening number. I'm writing these, uh, by the way, for Kim Sueoka, with whom I did the album The River Inside of Trees. Wonderful, wonderful singer. Uh, So versatile, distinctive voice, crystal clear. Cool. Opening of this piece begins with uh, low E. I might even make that low E a a finger tap if I can make it loud enough or Mm. uh, something. Just very muted. E lingering. And she sings. This is all against the E. comes in with as she moves from this D to this D sharp Mm. there's your intro I play these notes on the piano they sound a little interesting when she sings them oh they have some kind of mystery and the pattern that underlies them it's just a a little octatonic scale The, the scale is half step whole step half step whole step half whole half i like that scale yeah that's cool yeah um but you introduce it one note at a time and you keep thinking you know where it's going to go it sounds like minor weight major weight middle eastern but it keeps thwarting you uh it's an interesting phenomenon that the most transpositionally symmetric chords are often the most uh dissonant Hmm. so there are uh the whole tone scale, the diminished seventh, and the augmented oh, yeah. triad, right, all have in common that they are themselves transposed a whole step, a minor third, or a major third, respectively, those three, which is why there's only, there's only two whole tone scales. There's only three octatonic scales. There's only, what, three diminished sevenths? Four. Three. And yeah. there's only four augmented triads. Yeah. Hmm. And so those are the, the distant ones. Because yeah. they don't anchor us, we don't know where they're supposed to land. Yeah. So it's the more irregular scales that sound better to us. Suppo- or not well, better, but... Um, comfortable, comfortable. Comfortable, yeah. Because this has these asymmetric anchors in it that let us know where the tonic is. And if I play out of the blue... Our training through years and years of hearing major scales, it lets us know that mm-hmm. that B is really the tonal center. And mm-hmm. so in a way, I, we, we talk about symmetry. Actually, our brains love asymmetry. One of my favorite, favorite, favorite perfectly symmetric chords is the one that's uh, two notes on and then skip two notes off. So C, C sharp, skip D, E flat, two notes on, two notes off, two notes on. You can voice that as three stacked fifths. You can voice it as triad. Those three together. And it sounds very different in every voicing. And here's that same chord, but with different notes in the bottom. That's actually the same notes, just revoiced. 
Hmm. Have you uh, written a piece like based around that? Oh or, God, it's all over yeah. my stuff. Okay. I milk the crap out of that sucker. <laughs> <laughs> That's cool. Hopefully, I guess I milk the milk out of it. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, I I use it generously. That was a nice way to say it. <laughs> <laughs> Just a nice positive image yep. here. And milk is amazing. Mm-hmm. It comes out of a mother's body and it's food. What? Wow. <laughs> Yeah, I'm sure it's been on your mind now that you have a baby. Yeah. Uh, baby just reinforces my sense that everything in the world is incredibly awesome, if only you know how to look at it. Reality is amazing. Holy cow. Yeah. Yeah, and it's interesting. Like, in psychology classes, learning how babies experience the world, it's, like, totally messed up compared to our rigid, like perceptions of like mm -hmm. oh there you are sitting there but they would see probably a blob and they'd maybe be able to see this microphone in front of me like a couple inches away but still everything's a little bit hazy and kind of yeah well and that's all there in our perception our brain just doesn't let us see it it cleans it up for us greg ryerson our local mastering guru once said to me I think he was actually quoting, was it the inventor of the MP3? Hmm. Said, human hearing, terrible mics, great software. <laughs> Meaning huh. our ears send our brain a signal that is a jumble of crap. And our brains sort it out. And once in a while, if you pry the lid off that, you discover just how much finagling is going on in the brain, which is how MP3 works. It exploits all of these psychoacoustic illusions that are about sounds that the brain can't process or can't hear and therefore can be discarded from a sound in order to compress it. Hmm. It's the stuff like if you hear two frequencies that are very close together and one of them is substantially louder than the other, you can't hear the other one, so you can just ignore it completely. That's or, built into MP3? Yeah, it mp3 uh, and and its successors aec they all have uh, what's called the psychoacoustic model which says um here's how we think hearing works and here's how our model predicts the brain will process it and our model predicts that these sounds are the most significant and these are the least significant and we'll just throw away the least significant ones until we've compressed it small enough that it's reached your desired uh bit rate hmm so it, I thought uh, here I thought MP3 was basically lops off the top frequencies like high highest frequencies no. and lowest no but no not no huh. no no much cool. more complicated <laughs> um, sometime remind me I'll show you a sound subtracted from that sound compressed at the highest compression settings and you can hear what tiny tiny details are still being thrown away Ooh. oh it's weird. Huh. Cool. <laughs> Super weird. But it's all based on the psychoacoustic model, which is why there's these different encoders and they vie to be the best encoder. Mm. If they have a better model, if one of them is better at predicting which sounds it should throw away, then you get a better result. Hmm. Well, anyways, what, was there more you wanted to show in the song? Or Oh, sure. I, uh, I'll give you another little preview sure. of how I think. Yeah. I, I talked about uh, earlier about how I love 
tonal, atonal, dissonant, both, either, neither. I don't even necessarily like the distinction. One of my favorite games to play is to uh, write something that sounds very tonal, but the underlying process, the pattern, doesn't at all match where it's going tonally. So here's the beginning of one of the songs. Uh, I'm just playing the piano part here. The voice comes in. What's actually going on here is that the left hand is playing. It's the whole circle of fifths. Oh, <laughs> nice. <laughs> so in the first two measures, you've got all 12 notes. And the right hand is doing these descending scales that appear throughout the movement in parallel sixth, which I love. Hmm. And now we're at this point where... The chord, if it's a 19th century piece, wants to go in one direction, but the left hand is going here next. Hmm. And so the right hand harmonies keep sort of blossoming in different directions over this left hand thing that's just moving in its own very non-functionally tonal, not tonically centered way. Uh, And so we have, I think, the, the delicious interaction of expectations of the one pattern playing against expectations from the other pattern just keeps us guessing a little bit. The left hand is always just pushing off in a slightly different direction because the right wants to be settled and the left, it's all circle of fifths, the left can't possibly settle. Yeah, and that I do like that idea. The movement. Yeah, I do that sometimes too, where I put a pattern out there that I force myself to follow, like you're mm-hmm. doing with the circle of fifths. Every note must be played because then forces you to go mm-hmm. a different direction than you would normally. Yeah, so you make something that's because of the mechanicalness of it makes you try to compensate to make it sound better almost that works for me because right. well, i know what my you out of a ear habit. wants to hear it's the great modernist idea that um a pattern that works against your usual habits helps you discover new habits of course part of the trick is it's your game and you made the rules so you can break your own rules whenever you want to so when do you depart and here i don't i do the whole circle of fifths but i fudge the timing and sometimes start going backwards and make it work musically the mm-hmm. whole time. Uh, if it becomes mindless, then it stops being interesting. But what's important to me is not the strictness of the rule. It's that the logic has a power to it that propels the music forward. And the logic is powerful enough to make unexpected things seem natural and pleasing. Yeah. I like to have several different patterns going at once because it always gives me an escape hatch 
Very often there's a harmonic pattern, the pattern of an individual line, maybe a sort of mathematical pattern like the circle of fifths, and I can choose at any moment to break one and follow another. And it's a bit like uh, if you've ever played Portal or Monument Valley or Continuity, one of these games where you can just shift the environment and suddenly you have a new path through the puzzle. It's like that. Uh, having multiple patterns gives me little portals to somewhere else in the music. There's a lot of little gold nuggets you've been throwing at composers here. It's great. This is this is what goes on in my head. Yeah. <laughs> well, if people want to check out more of your music, where should they go? Well, of course, you should visit inniginig.net. That's a musical direction that Schumann likes, which means intimate or personal. Ooh. Yeah. I wondered about that. Yeah. I like it. Well, thanks, Paul, for being on Composer Quest here. Well, thanks for chatting, Charlie. I yep. really enjoyed it. Yeah. Thanks for joining me for this episode of Composer Quest with Paul Cantrell. I'll leave you now with a little of the final movement of The Broken Mirror of Memory, performed by Paul and Pat O'Keefe on bass clarinet. <laughs>